Welcome to Classical Chats. I'm Tiffany, and today we have a guest from the UK, Zachary Davis. He's a composer, he's a student, and also he runs a podcast. I actually got to know him virtually because he invited me to be on his podcast, and so now it's his turn to be online. I'm excited to learn about his story, because I spent that entire episode on his podcast talking about myself, but I didn't really know so much about him, except that he loves, loves Dave Brubeck's music, and so we're going to talk about how Chopin's Nocturnes actually inspired Dave Brubeck's music, and also Zach's journey composing, and all of the jazz and classical music influences on his own compositions. And you're also about to hear some of his own compositions in the background of this episode, so I hope you enjoy. Hi. Hi. Welcome to Classical Chats. Thank you for having me. I laugh because I'm not as experienced as you are with podcasting. Oh, I so, don't know about that, anyway, well, for those who don't know, I just uh, was a guest on yours. Can you actually say the name of your podcast? How do I pronounce the it? The Utopian Podcast. Utopian, Utopian, and there's a full story behind that that I'm happy to go into because half I would half, love to half know of about my it. friends are like, "Is that the European podcast? You know what is I it?" Know. When I first saw the invite, I was like, "What is that word?" Yeah, it, I'm <laughs> anyway. not even sure it's a real word, but I'm sure we can go into that if you want to uh, at some point. Yes, I would love to know about that. But first off, for those who don't know you, and also the, because this is the question that I ask every single guest, who are you? Well, not who are you, but how did your journey with classical music start? Well, how did it start? Well, I'm currently a music student at King's College London, and I'm an aspiring pianist and composer. But how it started, I, I think I was five when I first started having piano lessons. And mm. it was through school. Uh, my family and I had just moved up from Wales, which is where I was born. And... What did we do? Well, I, I had my grandma's piano. She gave it to us. And through my school, as I said, we, I, I had some piano lessons. And it didn't stick extremely well. I mean, I was by no means, you know, like any of these children you see on YouTube at all. I suppose the, the most significant thing, thinking about this, because I knew this question would come up, is that when I was five, I was kind of curious about the piano and composing and of course when you have these beginner pieces they're all in C major which means they only use the white notes and uh. not that I thought those pieces were racist or anything but I was thinking to myself I want to use some black notes as well so not that I understood necessarily what scales were or the patterns they're in but I composed this sort of like 30 second piece for the piano and I performed it proudly as a five-year-old and it's since lost probably for the best and oh, no. I didn't really compose anything for several years after that until I was 12 or 13 which is when I moved house and I moved next door to this jazz musician this semi-retired jazz musician called Brian Thompson who's a clarinetist and saxophonist and several serendipitous things just happened at the same time that I was I I look back and I think you know it's stranger than fiction I move next door to a jazz musician who's happy to give me lessons in oh. all kinds of things and then I discover this classical pianist called James Rhodes who if you don't know is very 
within the classical world, I suppose you'd call him controversial. I mean, he's not controversial in any other way, but he goes to his concerts in jeans and a T-shirt and is very honest about what he thinks about certain pieces and what they mean to him. And I thought that's amazing. I love that. And what happened then? So I was 12 or 13 and I, I'm, I think British viewers will know the ABRSM exams. And I think I had mm. just done my grade three exam. So I'd had a really slow uh, rate of progress up until that point for seven years or something. And then within that sort of period afterwards, through the stimulus that through the jazz musician and my mm. new love of classical music, I then did my grade eight exam, something like 18 months later, and, you know, went from performing, you know, there's a melody in the right hand with a chord or two in the left hand to like a Beethoven sonata and a, a Bach prelude and fugue. And I've been obsessed ever since. So, oh. and, and yeah, I mean, I'm sure we can talk about all kinds of things, but uh, that's the brief version. And I hope I haven't gone too, gone too much into too much detail. There. No. I, I love getting to know people, including yourself. So now I understand the Brubeck and the obsession with jazz influence uh, musicians. Now it makes yes, sense. It's, it's because of your neighbors. It's, it's one of those strange things that jazz and classical music didn't converge until much more recently within the past couple of years. They were sort of separate experiences within my musical life. Classical music really? is what I would play and what I love to listen mm. to, but I've really struggled with jazz. And as Oscar Peterson okay. says in his uh, book on you know studies and etudes and minuets on jazz, he says uh, jazz piano is a different technique. And I completely understand that because the whole idea of improvisation and scales and modes and things like that, to spontaneously use them and create something that sounds nice and that is expressive, is completely different to learning a piece and trying to interpret it. And I suppose mm. jazz, on that, in that case, as a result, was a much more passive experience. It was something I would always listen to, particularly New Orleans jazz, which I feel retains its... It's almost trapped in time, New Orleans jazz, It's it, it, in that it, it, it's like a historical music in itself. If you listen, it's all mm. acoustic instruments and they play in a very similar way as they did in the 20s with Jelly Roll Morton, for example. So, yeah. Just tell me to stop so then, if I'm going on too much. <laughs> no, 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 I would never stop. Uh, I'm just such a novice in jazz because I'm exactly like you in a way that I experience jazz in a passive way. I just listen to it. I don't play it. I also know I don't have the flexibility in my brain to play anything improvisatory because my left hand is absolutely useless and I attribute that to my poor understanding of harmonies probably on the spot like I understand them when I look at a classical piece of music but um, it was just something that I cannot really be part of it's just something I enjoy listening to uh, jazz so I'm curious how you combine the two now because do you see both influencing your compositions and uh, we can segue into your Brubeck obsession at any point. Absolutely. absolutely. Like. <laughs> well, this, this is a very complicated question because it's, well, it's, it's at least complicated for me 
there is a, an interview actually with Dave Brubeck, and I suppose this is a good a good seg- segue. And he's with Marion McPartland, and they did this kind of radio show where she would she was a jazz pianist, classically trained jazz pianist, and she would have guests on, and they would play together and talk about the music. And it's great. Some of them are on Spotify. I totally recommend your, your, you and your listeners check them out. Anyway, she did one with Dave Brubeck and she, she asked him about this classical side of him because he wrote masses and oratorios and ballets and things like that, which not that many people know about. And she said, well, some people think that between never shall they meet. And he said, never shall they depart. In other words, the line between the two isn't necessarily a line even. He kind of just saw them as a musical musical act and a musical experience. And I'm not saying that I necessarily think the same thing, but I struggle to define where my jazz influence ends and my classical influence starts. I, I, I think it, compositionally, I'm trying to fuse them together in uh, in a particular way but it, it's something I'm I'm still struggling with and I hope that answers that question I know it's a very difficult question maybe not that interesting to ask someone it's not like how much salt do you put in your food and how much sugar do you put in your food it's kind of I guess much more of an organic process right well yes and and when you write music it's one of those things that's ever-changing and ever-growing and one of the pieces I I sent you I wrote in, I think it was actually the end of 2019, so I would have been 18. And of course I recognise myself and my compositional voice in that, but I don't write music exactly like that anymore. And it's it's an interesting process. And I think everyone is the same, everyone who writes music. You kind of look at the music of of your history, of your past, and you think, no, that's... It's nice, but I I don't want to edit it. I'll leave it where it is in the past. It's just... It's like a past self. Which piece is this? So, oh, you sent me two. So this is the Miladen piece. This is mm. a, a piece that was a song, actually, inspired by hyperinflation. Who would have thought the most artistically inspiring topic? But it was for a music society, the Modern Music Society at my university. And I was given a prompt, which was a billion Reichsmarks note which and the number is so large because of hyperinflation and so i learned a bit about that culture and mm. i tried to re- recreate something that was reflective of that of that history at that time mm, that's interesting and then now i guess the second piece that you sent over is a bit more an updated representation of your current style of composition yes so that was a an experiment i suppose in bitonality that i kind of wrote well, kind of i did write at the beginning of this year and it was so for those who don't know what bitonality means what does that mean well it basically means playing two keys at once that's that's the essential definition i would say I suppose technically... How do you pick which two? Well, this this was actually something I, I considered a lot in the writing process. And I had recently heard a piece by Dave Brubeck, which is bitonal. Or 
to be more exact, bimodal, which means you maybe have C major in the left hand in the bass and C minor in the right hand. So it creates, although the, the tonic is the same, the C, the, the home of both keys, they have completely different inflections. And so to combine the two, you create a, a slightly jarring sound world. And for me, the whole point of this was bitonality is often seen as a compositional technique that's used, yes, in its own right, but that is a, a sonic effect, an effect that that is jarring. And I wanted to delve a little bit more deeply into it and see how expressive I could make something that was bitonal. And it's deep, yes, it's deeply inspired by the Brubeck chorale from Points on Jazz. So if you listen to the listen to it, you'll probably think it's plagiarized. So and it probably is. Uh, but I, I took a similar idea of having two different keys played at once, and explored how I could create a or generate a, a form of expression that I found convincing. Mm. Well, I actually quite like your style of composition, because I remember I mentioned how I generally don't love the direction that modern uh, compositions go, where it's just a style of complete chaos mm. and disjointedness. And, you know, maybe it's just that competitions like to choose pieces that are the most ridiculous and virtuosic as possible, which means, you know, banging your hands there and then banging your hands <laughs> five feet away and doing all crazy stuff. And uh, I kind of miss that tonality or sense of order and uh, beauty also. I think somehow uh, it's much nicer to, for lack of better words, to hear kind of continued story. Yes. Uh, but well, Leonard Bernstein, for example, at yeah. the end of his Norton lectures at Harvard, predicted a return to tonality in contemporary music. Mm -hmm. And of course, he was a composer, but similar to Brubeck, his compositions aren't played as much as maybe Aaron Copland or some something like that. Of course, Dave Brubeck's jazz is still played a lot, but his, his classical compositions so, maybe not so much. Let's talk about seriously just focus on your obsession Dave Brubeck what was do you remember your first uh encounter with his music and do you know what it is that stands out to you so much that you are such a big enthusiast well I I suspected you would ask this as well so I've been thinking over the past several days about, about exactly about what it is about his music and ever since I asked you why Schumann I came to realize how difficult a question that is. Hmm. So I suppose at the beginning, I had this book of jazz transcriptions of many different artists and two of the, two of the pieces in this collection were by Dave Brubeck or the Dave Brubeck Quartet. And that was Rondo, a Blue Rondo Le Turc. And what else? Uh, take five. And take five, of course, was actually written, the melody at least, by Paul Desmond, the saxophonist of the quartet. But jazz is a very collaborative art form. So they kind of all had a, a hand in, in creating it. And that kind of got me thinking, because at, at that point, this was probably when I was first discovering jazz as well, at 13, 14. Take five is in five, four. The 
Alatuk is in 9-8, but in a strange Aksak rhythm where you have three groups of two and a group of three. So it's it's this very strange play with rhythm that I think I was drawn to first. And this is a defining feature, that and polytonality of or, or bitonality or, or whatever, of of Dave's Bru- Dave Brubeck's music that I was intrigued by. But it was only until I would say at the beginning of the COVID pandemic that I decided to purchase, I, I have a collection of books here because I knew this would come up, uh, the Brubeck Nocturnes. Any beginners out there or even intermediate uh, pianists, I would totally recommend these Nocturnes. They are not too challenging, but they really give an insight into his compositional process. And I fell in love with them, only then to discover they were played by John Salmon and and then, you know, more on that later because I ended up meeting him and he came on the podcast and, and everything like that. So And he's a lovely man. But I, what is it about his music? I'm not sure. I can't really say why other than that feeling. It's like when someone asks you to define jazz. And, of course, you can say, well, it's this amalgamation of African-American music and uh, classical music that came together and but it doesn't really describe it it doesn't in the you know it doesn't it describe the the tapping of your foot when you hear jazz and when you hear something that isn't quite jazz you don't tap your foot it's something that is just beyond words but there is one thing i'd like to point out that i discovered only the other day that is in 1951 and i should preface this actually by saying that i just have come out the other end, the recovering end of a, a back and wrist issue. And as a pianist, this mm. is, you know, I had to take a month and a half off and I'm doing all these stretches oh, and no. so forth. You're injured from playing? I think so. I honestly, I don't know. It could be stress mixed with playing, mixed with some tension. Uh, the mm. maybe the a bad habit of how I was using my thumb. I've become an expert on the anatomy of the hand and arm now for some reason. <laughs> This is slightly sad and dorky. But it's helpful knowledge, I'm sure. For oh, honest. absolutely. I, 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 I don't know. I would. I have another book here to absolutely recommend, uh, which is called The Complete Pianist, uh, which I'm sure you can, I, I'll talk about later. But anyway, in 1951, because I'm sort of all over the place, uh, 1951, Dave Brubeck broke his neck surfing. Ooh. And he had back pain as a result for up to 20 years. And when I was having back pain, of course, I didn't break anything. It wasn't as severe as that. I, the only music I could listen to without feeling miserable was Dave Brubeck. Now, I'm not a superstitious person. I don't necessarily think that, oh, you know, I, I, I could sense his back pain. But his way of playing had to be adapted to the nerve damage he suffered. And whether I detected that and correlated it somehow subconsciously it wouldn't surprise me it seems a bit too coincidental but yeah it's great music no i mean i understand also with schumann the dual personalities i kind of can relate to that very much as someone who is present on the internet and also not present on the internet and everything else that I do that I don't show on the internet. So there's definitely something that I feel connected with uh, Schumann's music. And so not necessarily that I can 
sends Floriston and Isabius. But yeah, I kind of understand what you mean. And uh, what other recommendations do you have prepared? I don't even know where to segue next because it seems like you have a plan here. Well, yes, your... it's like I'm trying to indoctrinate your audience into my into my I cult. love. I mean. No, but I, I, what I love about this is that I get to talk to so many different kinds of people and they have such diverse knowledge. And so what do you have next for me? Well, next on your uh, cult list of Dave Brubeck, <laughs> I, I have the, the books that I, I play because I, I play Dave Brubeck most days, sometimes to warm up. And not that I'm putting Dave Brubeck down or his music down to say, oh, I use it as a warm up, but actually it gets me in a, oh, a creative you. zone that mm. allows me to think creatively about improvisation or phrasing uh, because it's a, li- a little more flexible than most classical music. And here I have a, a mixed collection. So, of course, they're the nocturnes, which I would totally recommend. And do you think they're similar to Chopin or, or John Fields or? It's a hard question that he is absolutely inspired by Chopin and Bach. I think in, within the classical world, those two composers are some, his key influences. Of course, he had other influences within, within jazz, but classical music, yes. Chopin and Bach are throughout them, and you can hear it in the, the voice leading and the way that the, the quality of the compositional craft is so high that you, you have these lines going everywhere. And of course, not that that is intrinsically good. Music can be good without that. But you, you play it and you think, ah, oh, yes, I, I can understand what he's doing. This is unexpected. And it's, I'm, I'm amazed by it. Uh, Do you have a favorite one? Sorry? Do you have a favorite one? Favorite nocturne. Yes. A misty morning, I would probably say, is my favorite at the moment. It includes some nuances of bitonality. It has a great melody. It's kind of like Debussy, but later on, of course, so maybe mixed with Bartok. But mm. ultimately, you you come out the other end and you think, no, that's that's Brubeck. He has his own compositional voice, which I think is great. And there are other pieces by him as well. And I should probably distinguish clearly that he did have a more classical side, which few people know about, and a more jazz-oriented side, which is what he's mostly known for. And it was only through listening to the Nocturnes that I discovered his other more classical music, so there is one uh, ballet that he wrote called Points on Jazz. And this is for two pianos. He often wrote for two pianos. And it's a piece that is based on a theme he wrote in 1958 on his tour uh, behind the Iron Curtain. And he was in Poland. And he wanted to think of a way to thank the Polish people for their great contribution to music. Uh, namely Chopin and so on his on his train ride I can't imagine having a more creative train ride than that he wrote this theme to a piece called thank you and I'm not going to try and pronounce thank you in Polish but that's the title 
Jeffrey. That's it. There we go. I'm not gonna. I I can't say it for some reason. Last I said this for like it was like eight I, years ago. I can't ago, say so it in my head. Probably wrong. And <laughs> it's a great melody. And perhaps I can play it to you after the podcast. I probably can't for copyright reasons on here. But it was only years later that I think it was John Salmon who said to him, you know that this melody is almost a direct quote from Chopin's B-flat minor mazurka. He said, what? And of course, his, piano, his mother was a classical pianist and piano mm-hmm. teacher, and he heard an awful lot of Chopin and Bach growing up. And so perhaps somewhere in the back of his mind yeah. was this melody. And listeners, I encourage you to look up points on jazz. Uh, Anthony and, and Joseph Paratori play it brilliantly. And then compare it with the B-flat minor mazurka. It's in the same key and it's got the same opening phrase mm-hmm. or a very similar opening phrase, the same contour. That's interesting. Uh, I only listened to a snippet, so I didn't pay too much attention uh, to the similarity of that in Chopin. That's very interesting well there are lo- there are loads of things i could i could talk endlessly about it so you just <laughs> yeah make sure you cut me off if you want to get a point in uh well i mean i'm now curious what it was like for you to meet i guess one of your idols right john salmon yes well i discovered john salmon through the nocturnes as i had said and the nocturnes were actually recommended to me by a former school teacher music teacher and to help me with composition and I had started this podcast and the podcast was one of those crazy things that I just did in lockdown and was like oh I'm going to I'm going to be insane and start a podcast there are crazier things to do I suppose and I was like oh I'm gonna I'm gonna email John Salmon and he is the nicest man in the universe honestly I have it's it's crazy and he, he said sure I'll come on your podcast he's he was totally relaxed about it he then went even further and was like, I've written this and, you know, it'd be good if you read this. And I have these audio recordings of a conversation between me and Dave that have never been released publicly before. And you're welcome to use them in your podcast. So there I am wow. at like age 19 with these archival, you know, objects of study and, you know, things that are unheard. And I was like, that was a lot of responsibility. I was like, I have to make sure that I, what an I, know. Honor. I was, I was so shocked that he had trusted me that much. And I thought, okay, well, I have to, I have to really commit to this. I have to do it well. And I made a, quite a, an extensive plan for that podcast. I think it's even to date the longest podcast episode. And we talk about everything. Honestly, I, I, I'm probably extremely excited at the moment to talk about Brubeck and maybe I'm not getting across as, as much information as I would like. Uh, and I would totally recommend that episode with John Salmon. It's called The Piano Works, I think. What's your first guest? He was my fourth guest, I think. Fourth. Mm. It was in December. And the podcast is is a whole thing that has come as a complete surprise. The, the kind of a, amazing opportunities that have arisen as a result. Um, but yeah. Yes. So when did you have that... Uh urge to make a podcast and really develop it on your own? Well, I'd always been interested in thinking about music as well as playing it and writing it. And I'm sure you've seen, because I know you're also an obsessed person about Glenn Gould. 
I don't know if obsessed is the right word, word, but I know last week when we were <laughs> no, talking. I do admire him Glenn very Gould. much. Anyway, Glenn Gould, and I was watching these interviews and these conversations between Glenn Gould and Humphrey Burton and Leonard Bernstein, perhaps, maybe not together. But I was like, that kind of conversation just doesn't necessarily exist in, in the main media anymore. And not that I could replace those giants you know intellectual musical giants but i thought i might as well try and contribute something towards this vision i have of a world which accepts classical music not as something elitist in the negative sense but just another art form that is approachable you don't need to dumb down the language that you're using as long as you explain what you're saying and people like it people can take it they absolutely can take it and they like it, as I mm-hmm. as I found out. So that was where I came up with the idea. Then came the naming process, and I was like, "Well, <laughs> shall I go for the Zachary Davis podcast?" I thought, "No, that's no, I can't possibly do that." Uh, shall I go for classical chats? I was like, no, someone's already someone's already got that. Yours uh, <laughs> came before mine, didn't it? I don't know. When did you start your- mine started in September, late September, I think. So maybe it did come up, but early. September. But I was, yeah. I was, I was trying to think of different names, and I had recently read these two books by Stephen Fry on Greek mythology, and I had discovered that we get the word mu- music from the muses, but the ancient Greeks actually had, and this is where it this sounds awfully pretentious, and I'll get to that. The ancient Greeks had a muse for music, and I think for poetry, called Euterpe. I thought, well, no one knows this word. We've got to bring it back, right? Now that rings a strong bell of something that I don't remember, just because I read all the, not all, but I read some Greek classics during my studies at Columbia, because everyone had to Mm. do that in uh, college, and that somehow rings a bell of something. I, I don't know why, but... Keep going. So Greek influence on the name of your podcast. Yes. So I I was thinking, hmm, well, I'm doing a podcast about classical music. People, some people are going to judge me for it anyway. I may as well just go all. Why? Well, (laughs) there is a certain negative, and I I, I make a a distinction here between, you know, negative kind of elitism. And I'm not saying that a, a positive elitism, the word is so... Uh, stained that you can't really use it in a positive way but uh, you know Richard Dawkins often talks about the the quality that often comes with expertise and I think we have to differentiate between expertise and excellence and elitism which is more similar to snobbery anyway people think that classical music is replete with snobbery and elitism and I thought oh god people you know might they think I'm strange so i decided that i was going to go all out with the name i I felt that if i went with the most pretentious name possible it would cancel out all of that elitism because people as i've said to you before i mean i've had friends say is it the european podcast and i'm like no it's not the european (laughs) podcast utopian i don't even know if it's a real word i think it's been used historically but i i can't find it in any dictionary so i guess you could say that i'm a pioneer in that respect I'm, I'm joking of course uh but that's that's where the podcast name came about and i had a friend on oh. jess and we spoke about literature and music and the artistic links between 
And then I was then I had a few more friends on. Uh, one was a, a PhD student at, at King's, where I am, and she's studying composition, I think, with George Benjamin. And it just went from there. And, and I got in touch with Samuel Andreev, who's a, a composer on and, uh, and a YouTuber. And he said, sure, absolutely. He came on and we had a good chat. And the rest is history, as they say, in that very cliche. Yeah, you've way. had some prominent guests. I think you had someone from Wigmore Hall. Yes, I had the artistic and executive director of Wigmore Hall. So that was a shock. When I'm always shocked. I was shocked. I was surprised pleasantly, of course, when he responded, when you responded, when anyone responds, really. Oh, but I am nothing compared to someone as, as uh, I don't want to use the word elite, <laughs> but you know. That kind of a big well, it deal. Was, it, it's for a prestigious composition. venue. It's a very historical yeah. and prestigious and respected venue. And there again mm -hmm. came a kind of responsibility of oh, lots of people might listen to this. I better, I better make sure I'm prepared. And so, well, I, I have a, a good respect for my my listeners, and I know, as I as I said before, I, I think absolutely they can take all of this this musical jargon. I think they can talk. They can take even if they're not musicians, is what I mean to say. Yeah. Non-musician listeners yeah, sure. can take this kind of conversation. And yeah, uh, and I, 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 I find it great fun. I think it's great fun. Yeah, and I appreciate that you're trying to do something that really preserves its integrity and not really dumbing it down, because I see that so often nowadays on, on social media. There are so many sensational content, and it's precisely dumbing things down just to get certain reactions and I think that's why I agreed to come onto your podcast and I was very intrigued by your endeavor so how do you see your podcast and also your composition studies going forward um, which year are you in so I'm in my second of three years studying mm. uh, undergraduate uh, music and Yes, that, who knows? I, I, I think someone once told me you can't plan a career in music. And if you try, it, it just turn out completely differently. And of course, there's, there, there, there's a, in the age of the internet, you can plan a little bit because there's such interconnectivity. But ultimately, my plan remains broad and slightly bold and, you know, forward-going. Yeah, in what sense? So I, I hope to finish off this podcast season in May, we'll see about future guests. And then in September, sort of going along with the academic calendar in the UK, I hope to do two episodes a month and to really accelerate the amount of conversation I have for the, well, for the second season. Compositionally, I hope one day I can integrate it somehow I was thinking actually of changing the music that I use for the introduction to my podcasts. That that is a, an excerpt from a piece I wrote in 2018, I think, or 19. Mm, that's for, nice for clarinet and piano. And I was like, well, what else can I do? Maybe I'll play an extract of Mozart, and then to end it as sort of like a closing title, I will change you know the mozart sonata in f major uh, in in three four i don't know the k number uh there are probably a thousand mozart sonatas in f major aren't there but uh anyway so i, I was thinking well I, uh, there's probably more than one because he wrote a lot of sonatas i i'm not sure for piano. yeah for piano i think he wrote 18 only eight, no? oh, gosh or well 
So, my Mozart sonata knowledge is limited. I'll just say that. I should know this, but so I... So F major, it starts with the, the triad in the right hand. In yeah. 3-4. Three, 3-2. Three, I think there okay. is only... There's only one in F one major. In F mm, there may be another one in the beginning. So that starts with a, a chord, maybe. Okay. I, I don't know. I haven't played all of the Mozart sonatas. I've sight-read them all so, at some point in my life, but I don't well, remember. Well, I was, I, anyway. I was thinking to myself, would it be satanic to, in the right hand, put the piano part up uh, an octave and then the left hand down an octave, but instead of in F major, in E major, so you have this kind of bitonal Mozart. I thought maybe that would upset a few people. I played it through, it kind of sounded jazzy. And this is something I quite like about jazz and why I'm particularly drawn to jazz and why I hope I can indoctrinate you all into Dave Brubeck's classical music is that I feel jazz is an idiom and a harmonic language and all of those things is an art form that allows for extreme creative possibilities without being inaccessible. And there are mm. many examples. I feel if Bach were born today, he would be a jazz musician rather than a classical musician. And I, I don't, I, I mean, it sounds like a slightly frivolous comment, but I was thinking about this. I think about Jacob Collier's music a lot. And of course, he's obsessed with you know, lines and voice leading and things like this and modulations to keys that don't exist on a keyboard, which is kind of mind blowing. And the kind of mentality of a jazz musician, I feel is much more similar to the mentality of a Baroque musician than the mentality of a Baroque musician is to a classical musician today. That is to say, improvisation, harmonic knowledge, and uh, a very tactile interaction with a keyboard that allows you to think, oh, this is the cycle of fits and I'm going to play this, this passage like this. Of course, continuer players still do that. But I am in awe, really, of jazz musicians. And just to really go all the way with my, my point about jazz being a, a very flexible idiom, is that you have amazing music, such as by Thomas Addis. And I think David Bruce makes this point, uh, a YouTuber composer. Thomas Addis has written amazing music, but I will admit I am a musician and my tolerance for dissonance is probably a lot greater than a non-musician. And I don't mean that in, a, in an elitist way. I just mean it like coffee. I mean, when you, when you first have coffee, you think someone's trying to poison you. And then... Oh, I hated coffee when I was younger. I would run away from Starbucks because Starbucks is everywhere in yeah. the US. I hated that smell. And then now I drink coffee every Now morning, it's so. my, my lifeblood. I just drink it all the time. <laughs> well, not too much in a healthy way, of course. And I listen to Jacob Collier and he's doing things that are just as experimental, just as harmonically outrageous. And yet it's, it's ability to enthuse masses of people who aren't musicians is self-evident and I respect that a lot and I think that yeah. about jazz and I think that about the works by Dave Brubeck because you said earlier that you were kind of disillusioned with contemporary classical music because of its yeah. its chaotic nature and its mm -hmm. I don't know it's it's freneticism it's too much of a yeah it's too much of a 
representation of the current state of Our society. I think everyone has very short attention spans. You know, TikToks is what ten seconds, fifteen seconds long. Oh, I, I haven't you're... downloaded that app. And I, you can't. I, I don't can't have it myself. either. But I, <laughs> I understand kind of the the overall uh, attitude of just attention spans is getting shorter and shorter, and you have to be constantly amazed and with fancy camera angles and you know all of that. So yeah, and I, I remember you you mentioned this a little bit last week. I can't remember on the podcast or off. And I was thinking about it, and I think it's to do with the shift in focus of composition. Sorry, mm -hmm. I, I'm thirsty. I will have a drink of water. And jazz musicians are very harmonically focused, much like Baroque musicians and classical musicians. But when I say classical, I mean the period. And I think today we are in a highly individualized artistic state. Every composer sounds mm -hmm. different. There are slight similarities between certain composers. But people therefore tend not to think in terms of a harmonic language that's associated with style but think more in terms of rhetoric in with their compositions and i don't mean that in a bad way i mean that in a very literal aristotelian rhetoric sense you have a kind of a statement that isn't necessarily harmonically sensical and but it, it, it's a question you know it's a question and there's a yeah. lot of theatrical playing with sounds instead of through the medium of functional harmony or even jazz harmony and i think that might be one of the reasons why to a lot of people this this kind of confused state artistic state is is a, a connotation of contemporary classical music do you have any advice as a ending points into having people who don't know either Dave Brubeck or just contemporary music in general, how they can open themselves up a bit more? Any Well, there, there are a few. And I think that firstly, I want to break that down into two questions, one about Dave Brubeck and one about contemporary classical music in general, because mm -hmm. I, I think Dave Brubeck deserves his own section of the answer. <laughs> and and so I would recommend if you want to get into Dave Brubeck that you first start out by listening to his jazz music. I think it's essential listening. I think it, it it's it's highly reflective of America at the time and jazz at the time. You can listen listen to versions of his pieces performed by Miles Davis, even a few of them, Bill Evans, and so on. And that will help to give you some context into his more classical works. And some of them are less easy to listen to. And I'm not saying jazz is easy to listen to either, but some of them are in a more contemporary classical style, his, his classical pieces. Then I would probably recommend that you, you go on to listen to his Nocturnes, as performed by John Salmon. Uh, I think they're available on pretty much all streaming platforms. And then there are a few other pieces, like Points on Jazz, that's great. There's a solo piano version, which was transcribed by Dave's brother, Howard, who was also a composer. There's uh, the piano suite called Glances. There is uh, Reminiscences of Cattle Country, which was written for his parents. There are numerous great pieces. 
And what I probably recommend you do is that you just scroll through the Spotify page, the Apple Music page, wherever you stream your music and 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 see what you like. And this was an interesting thing for me because I was listening to one of his masses that I actually really like. It, it it's a strange it's a strange concept because it's a mass with a choir. It's with the LSO. You can only buy this album though. It's called Classical Brubeck. It's with the London Symphony Orchestra and the London Singers, I think, or London Chorus or something like that. And you've got that orchestral setup and the chorus, and you've got a jazz quartet. And suddenly the 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 whole texture will change, and you're you get you're given this improvised interlude, which is a kind of tension release. You could say it's a kind of rhetorical device as well in the way that it functions in context with the classical medium. And I, I just I just found that fascinating. And I don't think my parents are completely convinced by it yet. That's where I was going. Uh, cool. But I'm, I'm trying to you know persuade them that this is this is where future church music is at. Not that I'm religious at all, but there we go. Now, your question about contemporary classical music is actually one that I'm trying to pursue myself in my own listening because I would say that up until a certain period in the 20th century my knowledge becomes very thin and I would recommend as what I'm doing at the moment that you go through this music chronologically you start out at the second Viennese school you've got Schoenberg, Berg, Webern and that will that's a little tricky uh, but then you've got other composers, contemporaneous <laughs> composers like Debussy and then um, Bartok, which are uh, a little less intense to listen to. And perhaps. Yes, I can already feel my muscles tense <laughs> up when you mentioned the second Viennese school, because I remember doing those uh, harmonic analysis and set theory. And that just, mm. that was it for me. <laughs> I lost my, <laughs> my passion for um, theory, music theory class well, right yeah. when we it, reached that a, point. It's a strange, <laughs> it's a strange concept and it's, it's different. It's difficult music. I would recommend actually, if you want to listen to Schoenberg, his 12 tone music, Mitsuko Shida has done an amazing job of recording and performing the piano concerto. She plays Schoenberg like it's classical music uh, mm. in, in a way that is expressive in a way that is full of character and, I would I would totally recommend that it's on YouTube I think, and mm. and then I just go through classical music history. Of course, there are many other musics, but classical music history uh, chronologically, and end up at the modern the modern day. And there, are, of course, mm. I, there's an infinite number of composers I could recommend, but I think chronologically is just a rule of thumb because people, as a composer today, we we look back and we think, what did they do? And we might look at music from 20 years ago and we think, okay, well, that's pretty contemporary. And now we're going to develop on that. So we're constantly pushing forward from what is behind yeah. us. So it's important you go, I think, in a, a one specific direction. And I hope that, I hope that ah, helps. I hope that wasn't too convoluted. Chronologic. No, that's very interesting. That also gave me an idea for future classical chats guest. I think, um, it would be very interesting to have the guest curate a playlist mm. that we can feature based on what you would recommend for those who don't know about either specific pieces that you're passionate about related to classical music or just something that um, you really think listeners should 
give a listen to. And um, yeah, I think that would be very interesting. I, I completely lost my first train of I think that's a good thought. There idea, were two then. trains. There was the playlist. But yeah, I would be so intrigued. And I hope that those listening on to this Classical Chats will listen to your podcast, listen to the playlist that you are now I'm asking you on the spot to curate and you can um, let me know because um, I'm always fascinated by how people approach or try to introduce classical music to an audience who might not otherwise listen. If it weren't for you, for example, I would not pay attention to Dave Brubeck, I'm sorry to say, but I also think uh, people's passions are very infectious and I, in a good way. I mean, maybe not the best term to use in COVID Well, no, times, I was but, just thinking, uh, it's a kind of bug. When I first started my degree, there was, we were doing early music and Gregorian chant, and they were talking about oh, it like, gosh. yeah, and I caught the bug when, you know, I fell in love with this music. <laughs> and now I'm trying to basically, you know, disseminate this music as much as possible uh, for no yeah, other reason than that I am completely in awe of it. And I, I think it's, it deserves to be played more, his classical, but his classical work. Yeah, well, I think that's a wonderful note to end on. <laughs> I believe this is the same pun that you used. <laughs> I am not a fan of puns, but... <laughs> Me neither. I don't know why I said it, but <laughs> there we go. Well, see, what you say is infectious and it has infected There we go. Me, unfortunately. Well, thank or you fortunate. for having me. Thank you for coming on.